0: This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast from May 28, 2018. Muslims are frequently accused by some of not being able to integrate with enlightened Western values. In this podcast, I talk to a Muslim campaigner who is working to promote progressive values in the West and in the Islamic world. Challenging Opinions is the podcast
1: where ideas are tested, whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice.
0: There was talk a couple of weeks back, among Trump supporters anyway, there was talk of Donald Trump winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Before you laugh, remember Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009. Nominations for the prize that year closed 11 days after he took office. And, I have to admit that I laughed a bit when I heard the suggestion of Trump getting the Nobel Prize. It sounded like a joke. But, at that point, there was a plan for a summit between him and Kim Jong-un. There were clear de-escalation steps being taken on either side of the Korean border. Blaring propaganda speakers were being switched off. The leaders of each side were meeting, and biggest of all, North Korea agreed to destroy its nuclear test site. Trump supporters do have a point when they say if Obama had achieved that, his people would be organising him a ticker tape parade. Obama got the Nobel Prize basically just for winning the election. But let's have a look at exactly what Trump has achieved. It's important to remember that North Korea, under its present leadership, is an extremely dangerous country to say nothing of the suffering of their own people. Kim and his clique are clearly ruthless and paranoid. They have a huge arsenal of non-nuclear artillery pointed at Seoul, the capital of South Korea, and its 25 million people. The North could kill hundreds of thousands of them in the time that it would take Trump to give the command to launch a counter-strike. And a surprise strike from North Korea with nuclear missiles would be far worse, so diverting them from the nuclear path is important. But it's not the only goal. When Obama and George W. Bush before him dealt with the Kim dynasty, they were extraordinarily careful. They targeted sanctions at products known to be loved by the leadership, such as brandy, That was hardly going to do any damage to the living standards of the average citizen. Also, they never agreed to meet personally with Kim or his father or grandfather. They barely even said the name of the Korean leader in public. They didn't even talk about him, just about the country. When they made any statement, it was usually done via a junior spokesperson. I strongly suspect that they were taking advice from strategists and psychological analysts, being careful to neither provoke him nor build up his ego. It may also have been aimed at preventing internal instability in North Korea, and that's just the behavior we can see. You can be sure that behavior was matched tenfold by their strategies in the private communications with the regime and in espionage operations. I think that all that caution was directed towards nudging North Korea towards the least risky path. That's not surprising, given how many lives are at stake if things go wrong. They carefully weigh the pros and cons of every step. That's not how business deals are done, and Trump, above all, is a deal maker. Making business deals means taking chances. Sometimes they come up good, sometimes not. Remember, 90% of businesses fail. Trump and his ventures have gone bankrupt four times, and that's not even a bad thing. If nobody took those risks, our economy would never develop. But in politics, how good is the deal that Trump seems to be making with Kim? The minor things, the switching off of the propaganda speakers and so on, they are important. You can bet that they were agreed in advance, staged to be symmetrical. But of course, the big thing is the destruction of the nuclear test site. But how important was that nuclear test site? North Korea has already done a total of six test detonations. Is that enough to develop a bomb? The answer is yes. How do we know? Because India developed a nuclear bomb with exactly six test destinations. India used that bomb to threaten and counterbalance Pakistan's nuclear weapons. And how many test detonations did Pakistan need to develop their bomb? Answer, six. So, in all likelihood, Kim has given away something that was of no more use to him. He basically sold Trump the nuclear disarmament version... ...of a course at Trump University. What did Kim get in return? He got the promise of a meeting with a US president. He's clearly been hankering after that for years... ...and, I suspect, not just for the photograph. That type of a meeting, apart from inflating his ego... ...would be likely to cement his position in the leadership of North Korea. He's not now going to get that meeting, I think... But Kim did get the U.S. President talking and tweeting about him nonstop, which is something that's clearly important to him. Is that a good thing? I don't know. But I suspect there's a room full of analysts in the Pentagon, or in the CIA, or in the State Department, or in all three, whose job is to analyze if that makes the world a safer or more dangerous place. That meeting now seems to be cancelled perhaps because those analysts or their bosses came banging on the Oval Office door to tell Trump to knock it off. I'm not totally condemning a new approach here. Previous US policy in Korea has prevented war, but it hasn't prevented an arms race, and it certainly hasn't produced a softening in the crazy regime in Pyongyang. But you can't transfer all business skills to politics. I'm not sure that Trump has the bandwidth or concentration for the amount of detail that exists in the Korea situation. Risk-taking in international affairs is a different thing to risk-taking in business. The stakes are of a different order of magnitude. When businessmen make bad deals, money is lost. When statesmen make bad deals... Lives are lost. Maybe even wars are lost.
1: Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think.
0: On the line now, I have Annie Zunefeld. She's the founder of the organization Muslims for Progressive Values. Annie, a lot of times we hear different commentators saying, where are the moderate Muslims? Is that you? Uh,
1: even the term moderate is not good enough for us. No, we are progressive.
0: <laughs> Tell me what that means to you.
1: Well, for us, it is um, about uh, being, um, advocating for an Islam that is rooted in social justice mm-hmm. and, and and on human rights issues, um, because we believe that Islam is inherently, Quran is inherently progressive upon its revelation. It was revealed in a society that was rife with, um, um, you know, brutal uh, tribalism, violence, mm-hmm. misogyny, slavery, um, and so therefore we feel that. Um, the Quran itself addresses social justice of the day, and so we in the 21st century should be addressing those uh, social justice issues in the context of the 21st century. Okay. A, lot, so, of, yeah. a lot of
0: critics of um, Islam, yeah. often coming from a Christian background, when you point out some pretty horrific um, Old Testament uh, verses in the Bible, say, Ah, yes, but that's just. Inspired by God, the Muslims hold that the Quran is the actual word of God, final and perfect, dictated to Allah. There's not much wiggle mm-hmm. room there, is there?
1: Um, uh, no, if you're going to be a, a, a literal uh, reader of the Quran, mm-hmm. uh, of course there's not much room there. But the fact is the critics of Islam are themselves bastardizing the interpretation of the Quran. They're basically, the same critics, are, in my view, no better uh, than the radical Muslims. Mm-hmm. They have taken the text out of context, out of historical and social context from which it was revealed. Mm-hmm. And so when you take a passage that is violent and it says, and, and you know, swipe their neck and what have you, mm-hmm. um, yeah, sure, but that was in a particular context of, the war that Prophet Muhammad was in at that time with a particular Jewish tribe at that time. Mm -hmm. But there are other passages after that, like a few sentences down the line from the same verse that says, but if they extend a hand in peace, then peace is preferred. But, you know... The, the radical Muslims conveniently leave that out, and the the critics of Islam conveniently borrow that, cut and paste, and leave that out as well. And so for me, I see no difference between those um, those critiques of Islam who intentionally uh, just um, kowtow, intentionally borrow from radical Muslims themselves.
0: Okay, I'll. Talk about the critics maybe in a moment, but are you really sure that if you came across somebody from, and I know that you reject the violence of people like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and so forth, but if you came across and debated someone from one of those organizations, it does seem to me that they have quite a good case to argue based on uh, the text in the Quran?
1: They have a very good case to argue because it's not just ISIS, it's not just Al-Qaeda, it is Saudi Arabia, it is Al-Azhar University of Cairo, which is mm-hmm. the Sunni institution of uh, of Islam. And I can go on and on and on. I mean, we've done studies and compared the human rights abuses uh, between ISIS, Al-Qaeda in mm-hmm. one column, the Muslim majority... Uh, countries that are, are inspired by Sharia in the second column, mm-hmm. really, it's just a cut-and-paste job.
0: What you're saying is maybe Saudi Arabia and other um, Muslim fundamentalist countries are no better. You're not excusing them. Yes. You're saying they're equally bad. No,
1: yes. And so, um, I, I'm no ally of them. I'm not going to defend them at all. As a matter of fact, they are the root of the problem. And, um, the only difference between Al Qaeda, ISIS, and those Muslim countries that, um, that are fundamentalist and radical in their own way is the degree of punishment. Now, if let's take, for example, um, uh, uh the issue of apostasy mm-hmm. in ISIS, they chop your head off. In Iran, they chop their head off. Yeah. In Saudi Arabia, they do the same.
0: Okay. So for, is, for people who don't, who don't know it, apostasy essentially means leaving Islam. If you were not born a Muslim, that's one thing. But somebody who is born a Muslim and then decides to either become an atheist or change their religion, that's viewed as a very serious crime and punished with death.
1: Yes. But... This is the, this is the doozy. This is the beautiful part of it. And this is why the work that we do is really relevant. Mm -hmm. As a faith-based human rights organization, the Quran literally says there is no compulsion in faith. And that means that if you born Muslim and you decide to leave Islam, you decide to not believe in a God and what have you, there is no earthly punishment for that decision. you have literally free will to decide what faith or non faith you want to follow in your path in in your life and the fact that the Muslim countries have punishment, whether it be by death, whether it be by sentencing, fines um Ostracized by the society, it doesn't matter. All these forms and di- different degrees of punishment mm-hmm. actually um, com- conflicts with the teaching of the Quran. So that's one. Number two. Um, um, are you sure, April? What do you mean I'm sure? Of course I'm sure.
0: <laughs> so when, and I've heard both of them say it, um, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, but also others say that in the Quran the penalty for apostasy is death, is that, are they just mistaken? Are they reading it
1: wrong? Yes, they are mistaken. Like I said, they are no better, as far as I'm concerned, than the radical Muslims.
0: Oh, hold on for a second. That's that's the terrible slide. Um, yes, Sam, it is. Sam, no, hold on. Sam, Sam, I, Sam Harris. Sam Harris. No, no. Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins have never murdered anybody.
1: I understand that. That what I'm saying is that their subs, their them subscribing to the same ideology of the radical Muslims and the Saudis make them equally. Uh, that make them complicit to this issue. I am a defender of human rights. I defend anybody to believe or not believe. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the Muslim world, we are we are known for our defense of Muslims the defend defending Muslims who leave Islam. Whether it be Raif Badawi, whether it be walid Abu Khair sitting in jail in Saudi Arabia, whether mm-hmm. it's in Mauritania, these are people that we defend and speak up for in the name of Islam that they have their right to leave Islam, to express however they want as a Muslim. And so don't bring Sam Harris and all that. I don't care. I don't really care what they say. What I want to correct is the misconception and the notion that all Muslims believe that apostasy is punishable by death. And that is actually a false notion because it's a false teaching. And why is it a false teaching? Because it is rooted in political Islam. It's not rooted in Prophet Muhammad's way of life even because during his time, people converted in and out of Islam on a daily basis. Nobody got punished for that. It was after he died, it was during the political Islam period of 100-200 years after his death that that became the norm. That that became quote-unquote Sharia law, quote-unquote God's law. It is not Mm -hmm. God's law. And so there is a misconception and a wrong teaching and a wrong belief system that Sharia is the same as Sharia law, which is not Sharia is a path, a guidance in the Quran. Sharia law is a man-made construct, a 100% man-made construct. So this issue of punishment of apostates is Sharia law, is a man-made construct, and it is totally political. So what I was about to say is that April last year, the Moroccan religious authorities, the highest religious authority in Morocco, came down with a decision, yes, apostasy has nothing to do With Islam, it is a political tool. They actually made that decision. Now the most, the saddest part about it Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. you would have to be really in tune with this issue in the Muslim world for you to even notice that the Moroccan religious authority came down with this decision because it was an earthquake uh, decision, a, a phenomenal shift in theology.
0: Just to just clarify, Morocco is a Muslim country on the west coast of Africa. Exactly what authority does this uh, uh, court have?
1: It is the highest religious authority of the country. And they decided they, exactly what? So they decided that apostasy, uh, the punishment, death for apostate has nothing to do with Islam, but is a political tool, mm-hmm. which is our position which is what we've been saying for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the highest religious authority of a Muslim country came down with the same decision is really earth shattering.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: But the sad thing is that nobody heard about it because it, they were silenced. They were silenced by the more radical, by the more conservative Muslim governments like Saudi Arabia.
0: Um, You're Obviously a nice person and you clearly have human rights values at heart and you founded, as you call it, uh, a human rights organisation. Are you ever disappointed that you don't seem to have much traction in the Muslim world?
1: Um, Well, I actually don't agree with that statement because we have just formed a global progressive Muslim organization called Alliance of Inclusive Muslims, and it is made up of 13 organizations and scholars of Islam, Mm -hmm. and it was founded in Tunisia last year in October, and we are registered as a human rights association in Geneva, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and our whole purpose and intention is to challenge the Muslim-majority countries as civil societies defenders of human rights in the Muslim world but you know our association is is our alliance of inclusive Muslim is a young organization but there are a lot of Muslims who are really sick and tired of the status quo if you are going to define Islam by the state definition of what Islam is then that's the problem um, because in the Muslim world there is no freedom to express your religious or non-religious um, um, as, as, as religious stance as an individual. so you what is, is the, what
0: you're saying is what you're saying that you shouldn't look at the stance of Muslim governments to understand the position of the people.
1: Correct. And this is this is the problem with the media. This is the problem with member states. Western states, mm-hmm. they always look at the conservative governments as the legitimate ones. They always look at conservative Muslims in the West as the legitimate ones. That's what they like to show off. And it's, it's really appalling because the Western governments themselves are guilty of promoting this radical Islam themselves. And at the expense of Muslims, those, it's the Muslims on the ground that are killed, are tortured by the Muslim government. Right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so we need to really reflect on the framing of the question or assumptions that Muslims are really simple and, uh, and monolithic because that's not what we are at all. And the fact that a lot of Muslims are actually coming to us as an American organization wanting to join the organi- the, the movement of progressive Muslims, mm-hmm. this is a really good sign. And the, the Muslim world is imploding. Mm-hmm. And... You know, when people talk about all these mullahs talk about, oh, Islam is a religion of peace, I'm like, yeah, really? Seriously? <laughs> What's so peaceful about the Muslim world right now? And it is because of their, their theology of hate, of intolerance, of discrimination, of unjust systems, and that's why the Muslim world is imploding. But they are the root of the problem. These scholars of Islam, these, um, these mullahs are the ones that are perpetuating this political Islam
0: there are, so are you, are you sure are, are you sure because w- one thing I mean it is notable and a lot of people have pointed out that you don't have to go back too many centuries in Europe to find attitudes and practices that would seem uh, not out of place in Iran or Saudi Arabia today but Europe and, and the western world in general essentially became uh, accepted human rights became more modern by largely rejecting Christianity so there's uh, an attempt to continue some traditions of Christianity but nobody is trying to enforce the more lunatic and extreme verses in the Bible like saying people should be killed for wearing a garment with two fabrics, nobody's saying that a wife should be stoned to death if she's not a virgin when she gets married isn't there a kind of a contradiction in what you're doing there? Clearly you've got progressive values are you sure you're a Muslim?
1: Yeah, I am a Muslim because of of because of the values that the Quran promotes. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be otherwise. Um I have to challenge the notion that Christianity at this moment is benign because in the United States is that is not benign. the case. In the United States you have legislators that are um that are Voted into office based on their interpretation of Christianity, sure, and these I, I'm, legislators. I'm not
0: arguing, I, I, I'm not arguing that, that that clearly there's there are people who I'm sure you disagree with, but 400 years ago they were burning witches. There's a little bit of progress. You have to agree.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and but in Saudi Arabia secular, they are
0: and, still executing people yes. for witchcraft.
1: Yes, Th- and that thanks to secularism. And mm-hmm. so, for us as progressive Muslims and myself personally. When I when I get pushed back by Muslims, especially Muslim governments, um, or oh, we are just an American tool promoting LGBT rights, mm-hmm. let's take for example. Well, the fact is, when you go back to the history of Muslim countries, historically Muslim countries, we didn't have, uh, we we didn't discriminate against uh, homosexuals. They were part of the society. They were not killed. Prophet Muhammad never killed anyone for being homosexual. There's no punishment in the Quran for being a homosexual. Now, when you talk about a hadith, which is a secondary text that was written 200 years after Prophet Muhammad died, claiming he said this and he did that, then that's a different, that's a different story. But a lot of the violence and a lot of the misogynistic and homophobic stuff is in the Hadith. It is not in the Quran. Do you you reject the Hadith as a whole? I reject Hadith probably 90% of the time. If it complements the Quran, I'll accept that for the most part no for the most part is a total bastardization of the quran and so when i push back against muslim majority countries they say oh you're just an american tool on homosexuality and lgbt rights then i say mm-hmm. well go back to your own history and tell me how was what was how was the treatment of homosexuals in your arab country in your african country before colonization and and that that's where the conversation ends because they cannot argue back against the fact that we did not have criminalization of homosexuals before colonization. And that's history. That's in the books.
0: You mentioned, obviously, there are dictatorial governments in many uh, Muslim countries. There are very few Islamic countries that have anything like a high-quality democracy or indeed any democracy at all. Why is it that lack of respect for human rights, lack of democracy, and Islam seem to go hand in hand.
1: There is one country that is, and I'm very hopeful, will be the the example of the Muslim world, and that would be Tunisia. Tunisia is secular. It is a Muslim country, but still secular. And its human rights is has is way ahead of the Muslim world, but it has also been way ahead of the Europeans for a long time at some point. So they've had abortion rights for women and voting rights for women long before the Europeans did they have um, now passed a law uh, lifted against the sanctions against Muslim women marrying non-muslim men Mm -hmm. and now they are visiting the issue of equal inheritance between Muslim uh, between women and men and so um, they have freedom of religion and belief freedom of conscience as part of their constitution Um, So they have tremendous human rights laws in the books. The difference is that... Roll roll back there,
0: uh, Annie, Annie, you said that they have tremendous uh, human rights laws and they're almost getting around to treating men and women equally for inheritance laws. That doesn't seem to be a great boast.
1: That is the only... The issue of inheritance has been the only one that has been stuck um, in the 7th century. But everything else has been really forward-thinking, including abolishing of slavery. Tunisia abolished slavery before the United States did. Um, and so we are talking about a Muslim country that has been very forward-thinking on gender issues um, way ahead of not just the Muslim country, but even the European countries. The only issue that has been really sticking point is the issue of inheritance. Mm-hmm. And there is tremendous resistance to that because... Well, you know, you're talking about money, you're talking about property rights, you're talking about re- really empowering women. If you give women that financial um, uh, purse string, then you are really giving women absolute rights. Now, the argument for equal inheritance for women within the context of Islam is really quite easy. Because when the Quran was revealed, women, for the most part, did not work, were basically properties of men. And, um, so the revelation of the Quran said, well, women are entitled to however many percent, depending, percentage, depending on what's left and how many male relatives you have because men were the caretakers, were. Mm-hmm. Now, if it is, if the Quran is supposed to be about justice, is it supposed to be about peace, as all these mullahs claim, well, you cannot have peace if there's no justice and the justice thing is to do is to give women equal rights because women are the caretakers women are the breadwinners women in some instances in in Morocco are uh, more than 20% uh are the sole breadwinners if the Quran is giving men these um, these um, extra percentages of inheritance because they are the sole breadwinners well Let's use that as the, the same basis to argue for inheritance, uh, equal inheritance for women. I understand. And so this, you understand. And it makes sense. And so theologians can't really argue against that because we're, what other theologians, progressive Muslim theologians are saying, no, this is about justice. If you say Quran is about justice, well, let's do this. And the, the radical Muslim theologians can't argue against that.
0: Okay, let me, let me move on to um, a different topic. You'll be aware, I'm sure, that many people, particularly on the right, either are afraid or are enthusiastic to stir up fear of Muslim immigration into the West, into the United States, into Europe. And I'm looking at one survey which was carried out by Channel 4 Television in the, uh, in the UK, which is quite a left-wing um, TV channel. And they did a professional uh, opinion survey of Muslims in the UK. And the results on that are really uh, hair-raising. So, for example, a large majority of Muslims said that homosexuality should be illegal. A large majority said that wives should obey their husbands. And a large proportion also uh, agreed that it was acceptable for British Muslims to have more than one wife. That doesn't... How do you react to that? In particular, how do you react to the fears of people on the right who say say they're afraid of Muslim immigration bringing in regressive values into the West?
1: Well, actually, I think that... um, well, my first question is, who the hell did they interview? Did they just go to the most orthodox and conservative? No, this was done by ICM. Bobby? This is
0: a very professional uh, surveying company, and this also is consistent with opinion surveys among Muslims in many countries around the world.
1: Well, that's not true, because if you come to the United States, 52% of American Muslims agree and strongly agree with marriage equality. And the latest peer research actually um, this Says seventy percent of American Muslims believe uh, actually get inspired spiritual inspiration outside of the mosque. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So uh, that is really not the case. But I think there there has not been enough of an effort by um, I think by a lot of are you are you really saying
0: that are you really saying that Muslims in the West don't have a Significantly more conservative uh, social view than the general population
1: I do not know what the population of Muslims are in the uk i 'm not an expert in the UK so I can 't speak to your the, the stats that you were referring to, but I can speak on uh, on on american Muslim issues, and they are definitely much more progressive and probably more progressive than the u k and Europe, but that 's the environment in Europe. So, that, that is a, th- those are political and social dynamics that we have to address, number one. Number two, well, we're let, let me, the Let me give you a hard no, one. On, the, no, no, wait, just, wait,
0: just, well, let me throw out one more wait. figure just to, to, um, to put it in context, because something that is very difficult to disguise. There are outbreaks of measles amongst Somali populations in Minnesota. Measles are quite a dangerous disease that previously was more or less entirely eradicated in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There are yeah. outbreaks of measles amongst the Somali population because they have taken a religious stance against vaccination. Yeah. That does indicate that they have a different set of values than the general population, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, but the general population includes the Muslims who don't agree with them, too. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't. That's true, but that take it, taken
0: as a whole, the center of gravity in the Muslim so, so population... So are you saying
1: to me that the example of the Somali Muslims is indicative of American Muslims' belief system?
0: Well, well you, rege- you rejected the opinion polls, and I can understand that, you know, the, but it's very difficult to uh, argue that uh, a large number of children became ill with measles, and that, and that was confined more or less exclusively to the Somali community.
1: Yes, because the Somali community is conservative. The Somali community is quite radical. And so they are insulated and they are, a, they self-segregate themselves, mm-hmm. but they don't represent uh, the American Muslim population. And that is what I'm saying. If you're going to use the Somali as an example of American Muslims, well, that is, that is misguided. And the thing that I have a problem with the media, Mm-hmm. And with research institutions, even with the Pew one that came out recently, mm-hmm. despite the statistics, the statistics showing that American Muslims are progressive as even in some sense more progressive than evangelical Christians. This is, this is uh, documented. They did a documentary around the results that they have, um, you know, discovered. Mm-hmm. And even in this documentary that they put together, they interviewed probably like about eight Muslims, and all seven of them were conservative, and only one was absolute liberal progressive. And, and, and even in their own documentation, video documentation, they did not visually represent their own studies. This is the problem with media, and this is the problem with research institutions, if I'm, if, if they're going to, my question is, where do you go to find a progressive Muslim? Where?
0: Well to you I would guess.
1: Most progressive Muslims are not organized like the radical institutions are. You have to understand that
0: So so is is what you're saying That when when the media want to find uh, Muslims They go to the mosque and they come across The most exclusionary radical Muslims Okay, I I, I can understand that And that's, you know, I'm trying to get all perspectives On this podcast and that's why I'm talking to you I know that you mentioned that you were working On child and forced marriage What's your interest in that?
1: Well, the interest is that it is uh, appalling that even in the United States We have no laws against child marriage um, on the books and uh, there are provisions in many state legislations that um, marriage is 18 with exceptions where parent with parents are consent but children are being forced into marriage by their parents and so this is an issue that needs to be raised I mean we address child marriage in the Muslim world well why are we not addressing child enforced marriages in the United States even female genital mutilation and cutting. This is an issue in the United States, and as a Muslim organization, as a Muslim human rights organization, this is this is one of our issues. And we're not. Um, this is an issue not just in the Muslim community, but it's also in all the Orthodox communities, whether it be Jewish or Christians as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is pervasive. A little bit more pervasive, even the Catholic communities um, in Latin American um, immigrant communities especially the first generation. So,
0: I know that you work with um, LGBT issues as well. How does that go down in the Muslim world?
1: Um, well, in the Muslim world, you know, I've, I've shared with you their pushback, but as far as here in the United States, and we've seen the shift um, in American Muslims' attitudes towards LGBT rights, um, we've been working on this for more than 11 years, and myself longer as an ally, um, there is there is no reason why there is this homophobic teachings that is so pervasive in the Muslim traditional and orthodox Muslim communities, and that needs to be undone. That needs to be eradicated and eliminated. And so this is you know we 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 offer inclusive Muslim workshops or inclusive Islam workshops, and then we have. Um, we have a lecture series coming up in Dearborn, Michigan, Atlanta, D.C., and Chicago this month. Mm-hmm. So we'll have that information up on our website. And it's open to the public, and it's free. And we even have free dinner because it's during the fasting month, so you're more than welcome to join. Mm-hmm. But it is a way It is a way to basically open it up to the public, public, whether you're Muslim or not, to say, you know, these are the alternative, inclusive, loving, compassionate um, interpretations of Islam that we should be practicing and not the homophobic, homophobic, misogynistic, and discriminating and hateful interpretations of Islam. That needs to be done with. We're done with that.
0: Annie Zonnefeld from Muslims for Progressive Values. Thank you very much for talking to me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, William. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents.
0: Go to the website for sources and for Annie's links. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter and also follow Annie Zunefeld at Annie Zunefeld. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. And just to remind you, I've created a Patreon account and a tip jar, so if you would like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate that. And you can even do that at no cost to yourself by using the web link to buy the books that I list in the sources on Amazon If you buy that book or anything else at all on Amazon, then the podcast gets a small commission. Coming up next Monday, that's June 4th, I'll be talking to Daniel Ameli, a promoter of cryptocurrencies, and asking him whether Bitcoin is one big scam. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.